if you look in your bulletin in the evening service, there'll be a, a place where it says Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. I'm going to read that now. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This is God's word. Now, the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, uh, in the book of John, John says near the end of the gospel, he says, if all the things Jesus said and all the things Jesus did were recorded, uh, there wouldn't be enough books to uh, hold them all. And therefore, whenever Matthew, Mark, Luke, and or John record an incident, they preserve an incident out of the life of Jesus, it's not just because it happened. Lots of other things happened that they never wrote down. It was also because it teaches us something. The miracles of Christ were never just magic tricks. They were always both redemptive and revelatory, which means they weren't just magic tricks. They both redeemed and saved people, and they taught people. They saved and they demonstrated. They saved and they taught. And if we study a miracle, even though we're not there, we will find that it will change us and it will teach us. Now, what would this miracle teach us? If it teaches us, it'll change us. If you really grasp the teaching, it changes. If you grasp the revelation, it'll be redemptive. Now, what is it that it teaches? It shows us Jesus in, you might say, three stances. You have the sleeping Jesus. You have the rebuking Jesus, saying to the storm, rebuking the storm. And then you have the questioning Jesus. Where is your faith? You have the sleeping Jesus. You have the rebuking Jesus. Peace, be still. You know. And you have the questioning Jesus. And each one of those conditions teaches us something. Let's look at each one. The first one is, let's look at Jesus rebuking the storm for a minute, first of all. The, uh, the storm, the rebuking Jesus. He gets up and he rebukes the storm. He says, peace be still, and everything gets calm. What does that teach us? The reason that Luke and Matthew and Mark, by the way, all preserve this incident is because ancient people they saw no greater symbol of, the, of death, of destruction, of chaos. No greater symbol of these things than the storm, the typhoon, the hurricane. And you really, there isn't anything. Even, even us modern people have only come up with things like atom bombs. And most of us know that uh, just a, one old-fashioned hurricane is far more powerful than a nuclear warhead. There is no greater symbol of destructive chaos than the storm. But Jesus is Lord of the storm. He rebukes it with a word, and it's still. In uh, 
Psalm 29 is a tremendous verse, a tremendous uh, uh, place where it says, The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. I found this psalm after something happened to my family and myself back in, I guess, uh, May of 1975. We were living in, a, in Virginia. I was a pastor there, and there was a neighborhood in which we were living, and a real tornado came through our neighborhood. And I will never forget it. Uh, it was, you might, the sight of it was unforgettable because the clouds were black. Black clouds, not gray clouds, not dark, black. And they swirled like smoke out of a furnace. And the sound was unforgettable because it sounds like you're in the middle of a locomotive engine. It's hard to describe. And the results were pretty amazing. Because in the woods behind our home, we walked in and there was a 35 to 40 foot swatch right through the middle of a heavy forest that was stripped bare. The oak trees, and there were oak trees there, had either been snapped off like they were little Q-tips or they'd been twisted right out of the ground. It was like some giant lawnmower, <laughs> you know, had actually, some, some cosmic weed whacker had actually descended upon this forest and had just stripped it bare. And I came on the Psalm 29. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And flashes like lightning. And the reason we never forgot that was because within two months of that time, something else happened to our lives. Our, you, know, you know, there's nothing that makes you feel more helpless than to stand and watch a tornado. Nothing makes you more, feel more small and helpless. But within a couple of months after that, one of our very best friends, the family that we were closest to, a man, uh, the, the husband and father of that family, was killed working under a house. We ended up leaving our church and leaving the pastorate and leaving the south and moving to Philadelphia. And within like two or three months after that tornado, our lives had been so totally turned around. And we began to realize that the storm was sort of a metaphor for our lives. That there are circumstances. You know, we'd been there for almost ten years. Everything looked so stable. The things that look so established. The things that look so, that you can, you can count on things that look so foundational. There are storms of life. There are forces before which we stand. And when we see them, we're helpless. We're small. And they take people away, and they take circumstances away, and they take safety away, and they take jobs away. They take financial security away. You see, the physical storm is just a metaphor for the insecurity of life and how tremendously small and insecure and impotent we are before life. But Jesus is the Lord of the storm. This miracle shows that Jesus is God himself because that tremendous psalm, Psalm 29, it says the God of glory thunders. The psalmist is listening to a storm. And how does he interpret the storm? He says, the God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord flashes like lightning. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. You know what it's saying? It's not just saying, the Bible's not just saying that God's power is greater than the power of nature. 
It's saying that the very power of nature is derivative of God's power. Nature only has power that's on loan from God. All power is from God, which means that when it thunders, it's actually, in a sense, God's thunder. It's God thundering. When there's a wind, it's God's outskirts. And when Jesus says, peace, be still, and it all goes away, he is saying, I am that Lord. I laugh in the face of storms. Storms only have power on loan from me. I am the Lord of the storm. I am the king enthroned over the flood. And therefore, if you take refuge in me, there is not a force on the face of the earth that will wipe you away. There's not a thing on the face of the earth which will strip you away, twist you out, and whisk you away. In me, and only in me, are you safe. I laugh in the face of the storm. That's what he says. The the, the rebuking Jesus shows us that Jesus is Lord of all storms. But, number two, here's where the rub comes in. I mean, that's good news, isn't it? Makes you feel good. Wow, you say. But here's the second picture we have. Jesus asleep in a storm. Because not only does this miracle tell us that Jesus is Lord over the storms, it also tells us, the sleeping Jesus tells us, that God very often seems to really take his time about storms. He lets them come. He lets them rage. He lets the waters come up. He lets the boat start to sink before he does anything. So the second point is that God often seems asleep. There's another psalm. It's Psalm 44. In Psalm 44, it says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten thee. Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Awake! Awake! It's Psalm 44. In other words, it often seems that when the storms of life come, that we are being battered, it looks like we're sinking, and it, we, we ask for God help. You see, the psalmist there in Psalm 44 says, We have been true to you, and yet you've forgotten us. We have not done anything wrong, and yet this is happening to us. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? And what this is teaching is God will often seem asleep because God will let things come. He will let storms come. He will let the waters rage. He will always let it go on longer than we think. He will not be hurried. Now, that's not great news, is it? But let's see, let me tell you something. First of all, let's apply this to ourselves. Let's apply it. This Bible is telling us, in the picture of the sleeping Jesus, that though God has complete power over storms, he doesn't usually act the way we would like him to act in the storms. He often seems to sleep. He often lets them go on. If you are a Christian, or if you are coming to Christianity, and you have, excuse me, if you have the delusion that once you give your life to Christ, things are going to go well in your life. Once you give your life to Christ, things will fall into place. After all, isn't my father the one who owns the cattle on the thousand hills? Everything will go well. That's a delusion. The Bible nowhere says anything like that. As a matter of fact, you have places like James chapter 1 where it says, count it all joy my brethren, when you fall into diverse temptations and trials. 
But here, let me give you the perfect example. There's a place where Jesus actually says in one line what this miracle illustrates. The rebuking Jesus, yet the sleeping Jesus. He says in John chapter 16, verse 33 and 34, he says, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Let me say that again. In the world you will, not maybe, you know, maybe some of you people who aren't living completely consistent lives. No, he doesn't say that. He says you will, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Notice he does not pit those two things together. The rebuking Jesus and the sleeping Jesus are not a contradiction to him. In other words, he doesn't say, I have overcome the world so you won't have tribulation, nor does he say, you will have tribulation because I haven't overcome the world. See, in our minds, we say, if he's overcome the world, then we wouldn't have tribulation. If we're having tribulation, he hasn't overcome the world. No, he doesn't put those two things together. Maybe you and I do. He doesn't. He says, I have overcome the world, but you will have tribulation. What's that mean? It means this. When he says, I have overcome the world, if you take that into your heart when you go through tribulation, you know what that means? Because he died on the cross... Because he rose from the dead, because it's just a matter of time before he comes and puts everything right, because he's defeated death and those who believe in him, death no longer has any ultimate ability to triumph over you. Because he has overcome the world, evil and brokenness is a passing thing. It's temporary. A Christian is somebody who says the evil and brokenness of this world will not prevail. It's a passing thing. There's light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. It will pass away. It will fall into pieces. But I and my Savior will prevail. Now, a Christian is somebody who says he's overcome the world, so what I'm going through now is temporary. It won't continue. If you take that into your heart, if you let it pierce you like a shaft, when you're in tribulation, you'll become like Jesus. You'll get more and more, bit by bit, like him. What's that? Tender, tested, confident, humble, compassionate. You see, the rebuking Jesus and the sleeping Jesus are not contradictions. So let me apply this to you in two ways. Now, this is, you know, as I said, the rebuking Jesus, how do we apply that to our heart? Well, we remind ourselves that in him, Nothing can wipe us away. Nothing. But how do we apply the sleeping Jesus to our heart? Well, two ways. Number one, you've been warned. God does let waves come. God does let boats look like they're about to sink. God does let things look pretty bad. God lets the the winds come and the storm rage. You've been warned. What's that mean? It means this. I believe that 50 plus percent of the distress that we experience in our troubles and trials is surprise. You know, there's the pain of the trial, and that'll never go away. There it is. It's irreducible. But then there's the surprise that the trial happened. And when you're sitting around saying, how could God let this happen to me? I've been doing a very good job, I thought. What kind of God would let this sort of thing happen? That's the 50, 60, 70% of your distress that's your fault. You can't help the pain of living, 
But you should be able to do something about the surprise about the pain of living. If you're surprised, you're naive. And God's told you. You're a rookie. You're a kid. You see? You're not being sophisticated here. You've been warned. God lets these things happen. In the world, you will have tribulation. Now, if anybody's totally shocked by that, the shock, which is, I think, the part that's the most difficult to bear in tribulation, that can be eliminated. That's your fault if, you've, if you're shocked. Okay? That's the first thing. You shouldn't be surprised. Don't be shocked at tribulation. Don't be shocked at storms. But secondly, what this teaches us, the sleeping Jesus teaches us that God will not be hurried. He won't be hurried. You know, master, master, don't you know that we're going to drown? Okay, okay, he said. He gets up, maybe stretches, you know. God will not be hurried, and if you've got a brain in your head, and most of the time we don't, do we? If, you've, if you really think about it, who would want to hurry God? Do you know that much about what the storm is about? Do you know that much about your own heart? Do you know that much about life? One of the things I noticed the other day when I was watching some football games, I just noticed that nowadays every team puts coaches way up high in the stadium. And, you know, they have their little, their little mics, and they're talking to the guys down in the trenches. They're telling the coaches on the sideline what's going on. You know why? Because the people who are closest to the action have the worst perspective. The people who are closest to the action very often have the poorest understanding of what's going on. They can't see the big picture. In other words, they're down, the, you know, down on, the, on the sideline, the coach is saying, why are they moving the ball on us? Why are they running on us? And, but see, he can't see it. Up in the top, the coach says, the linebackers are lining up way too deep. You know? From the top, you can see it. The people very often closest to the action are the ones who have the poorest view. God has the big picture. God will not be hurried, and who in their right mind would want to be hurried? hurrying God? If there is a God who created all the universe, it is only logical that often his schedule would seem illogical to us. Can I say that again? It is only logical to assume that God will sometimes appear illogical. It is only reasonable to assume that God would sometimes appear unreasonable. It's unreasonable to think he would always appear reasonable because he's so high above us. He's way up at the top of the stadium. Elizabeth Elliot tells a story about watching sheep being put in a vat of insecticide once every couple of months. If they didn't get put in that vat, they'd be eaten up, they'd be bloated, they would die from the insect bites. But when you're putting them in the vat they don't have a very good perspective on why you're doing it. They put, you, you, know, you, you push the heads down. He's drowning us. What kind of shepherd is this, you see? But, you know, the sheep can't see the big picture. They're sheep. The shepherd is a, is a higher order of being. God is a higher order of being. The sleeping God tells us he will not be hurried, and why would you in your right mind, try to hurry him. The wise person prays and says, Oh, Lord God, I'm asking for this thing. But please give me what I would have asked for if I could see what you see and if I could know what you know. God will not be hurried. 
God will let the storm come, even though it doesn't seem like it's fair. God will let it rage a lot longer than you think it should. But now lastly, we've seen what? The rebuking Jesus tells us that he's got power over the storm, and we've seen that the sleeping Jesus tells us that, he's got, uh, uh, that he doesn't deal with storms the way we like, but he deals with them in his own time. But lastly, the questioning Jesus teaches us that you can trust and how to trust Jesus in storms. How can you trust Jesus in a storm? Especially when, especially when it looks like he's asleep. Well, he gives us a wonderful answer to that, a tremendously pregnant little statement. After it's all done, after they all, their panic is gone, he turns to them and says, where is your faith? Now, you know, years ago, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a sermon on this verse that's just terrific, and most of my insights just come from him. He says, and I think, that that little question teaches us the key to how to trust Jesus in storms. Jesus does not say, you don't have any faith. He says, where is your faith? He says, get it out. It ought to be here. What, 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 what are you doing? Get it out. Why don't you have it? He doesn't say, you don't have it. He says, you've got it. You're not using it. Where is it? It should be here. Now, that tells us a couple things right away. First of all, it tells us that faith, contrary to popular opinion, is not automatic. Faith is not a feeling. It's not an impulse. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't kick on like your air conditioning kicks on when the, you know, when the heat gets, it gets too hot. The air conditioning turns on right away. That's the way it's set. People think, well, if I had faith, it would just come on. Obviously not. God, Jesus would never say, you should have, you should have felt tranquility. He, he doesn't say, <clears throat> where's your tranquility? Feel it. He doesn't say, just make yourself feel tranquil. Stuff your fears. That's not what he's saying. He wouldn't say that. Feelings can't be forced. They shouldn't be forced. What he's saying is, faith is a deliberate action. And he says, you have it. Why don't you get it out? Now, do you see what that means? It means that faith is applying what you know about Jesus. They were being controlled by the storm. They were being controlled by the situation. They were being controlled by what they saw. Jesus says, don't you know enough about me? Why didn't you pull it out and use it? I mean, look what they already know. And if you read the book of uh, Luke, the chapter before, we read out of chapter 8, right? Chapter 7, he raises the widow's son. Jesus says, you have seen me raise the dead. You have seen me heal thousands of people. You have seen me teach you. You have seen that not one thing I've ever said has failed to come true. You have seen me say that, that, I, that I number the hairs on your head, that I love you. You know these things. Get them out. Where are they? They ought to be here. You weren't using them. You weren't applying them. Faith is deliberate action. Now, <clears throat> let me apply this to finish up. But first of all, the first thing I'm going to say is, do you see, therefore, how no-nonsense Christianity is? There's a certain segment of people out here I need to speak to for about a minute. A lot of you, in your earlier days, kind of got rid of Christianity because you decided it was intellectually untenable. You decided, well, maybe, maybe in college, maybe some other time, you said, I, you know, who knows if there's a God? 
And the Bible's full of contradictions, so you can't really know, you know, what God's word is. And uh, who's to say who Jesus was? Maybe he was a magician. Maybe he was a, a prophet. Maybe he was who knows what he was. And so you got rid of the idea of, of the, you, the in, Jesus Christ and Christianity became intellectually untenable to you. And so you moved on out into your life to live your life as you are. But as time goes on, you've come to see you need spiritual strength that you don't have. You've come to see an emptiness. You've come to see life isn't something that you can manage that well. And so now you're nibbling around the edges of Christianity. You know, maybe you go to Bible study or you're reading or, you, or somebody brought you here or you've been coming here for a while and you'd like that strength. There is no shortcut, friends. You can't just get strength by having some kind of general faith. The Bible is very no-nonsense. The Bible says faith is applying what you have been convinced of, what you have seen, what you know. In other words, let me put it this way. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God incarnate, born in a manger? Do you believe that he died on a tree, died on Calvary's hill, died on a cross for you? Do you believe he was physically raised from the dead? Do you believe he passed through the heavens and he seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? And that he will come someday to judge both the living and the dead? If you believe that, there's all the hope in the world. You can face anything if you take that out and apply it. But if it's not true, if there is no God who's invented the world, if, there is a, if when you die you just rot, you know, if there isn't any way to deal with guilt in an objective way, then there's nothing to hope for. You can't do an end run around these intellectual ideas. You have to go back, you have to study, you have to reflect, you have to say, is it true? Is it true? Is Jesus who he said he is? Did he do these miracles? Did he do these things? Because that's what faith is. It's applying what you know. That's why I see people saying, I wish I had this kind of faith. You have to think. What do you mean, think? I thought faith was just believing. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Where is your faith? Get it out. He's very unsentimental about it. He's very hard-nosed. If you just want something in your life, you're going to have to think. That's why I'm continually saying, come to our classes after these worship services, like Discovering Christianity or Foundations. What is the evidence for the resurrection? How do you know Jesus is the Son of God? Where are the real historical witnesses who saw it? You have to know these things. How do you know there's a God or maybe when you die it all rots? You can't just have faith in faith. Dwight Eisenhower said, America is based on strong religious faith and I don't care what it is. That's not biblical faith. Jesus doesn't say, well, you should just have thought positively. What he says is, you know enough about me but you were refusing to be controlled by it. You should have gotten it out and used it. You see? Twyla Paris has this little line in one of her uh, songs. She says, we will choose to remember and never be shaken. That's a perfect definition of faith. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. Jesus says, you've been shaken because you were not choosing to remember. Well, remember what? Remember this. When they go to him and say, Master, don't you care that we perish? You know what he's, they're doing? Master. In, in Mark chapter 4, we're told that some of them said, Master, don't you care that we perish? They were questioning Jesus' love. Now, Jesus was telling them they should have known enough about his love for them that they should have been able to handle that storm. But you know what we've got? We've got something they didn't have. We've got something far greater. We've got greater evidence that we can get out and use. You know what it is? 
The voice of the Lord, the psalmist says, thunders. The voice of the Lord flashes like lightning. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And there was a storm greater than any storm any of you will ever go through. When Jesus Christ was stretched out on the cross at the top of Mount Calvary, the voice of the Lord thundered in a way it never has before. God forsook his son for our sake. He said something. We don't know what Jesus heard, but we, heard, we knew he heard something like God saying, the Father saying to him, depart ye cursed into everlasting fire. God's voice thundered. That was a storm unlike any other storm. And Jesus Christ, one lone man, one lone oak tree, bowed his head and he was twisted out and he was stripped bare and he was wiped away for you and me. And a Christian is somebody who gets out what you know when the storms come and you say, if Jesus Christ was faithful to me by staying true to me during that storm, I can stay true to him during my storm. Can you get that out? Where is it? You know it. Get it out. And if you get it out, you'll be able to face anything, anything at all. The most encouraging thing about this miracle is that the storm goes away because they go to him, even though they go to him so badly. You notice how badly they go? They say, Jesus, wake up. Are you trying to drown us? Now that's, that's a bad way to approach the Lord. That is, let me put it this way, that's a poor prayer. That does not get an A, doesn't get a B, just sort of a D minus prayer. But you know why I don't fail it? Because Jesus didn't fail it. Here's the most encouraging thing about this. They go to him so badly, they go to him so weakly, they go to him so impurely, but they go to him and he responds. Just go to him. It doesn't matter the quality of your faith. If you just go, it's faith. You're not saved by the quality of your faith. You're you're saved because he died for you. Don't you see? Jesus says, the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. It's not the purity of your heart. It's not the perfection of your faith. Just go to him. Even saying the bad things, even with bad motives, even complaining, even grumbling, go to him and he will respond. As the great hymn writer said, blind faith is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he shall make it plain. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. See, he, he plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your table, help us to realize what your son did for us so that we can get it out and face the storms of our lives with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.